You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salt again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampshade and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way that your lights shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your father who is in heaven. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exists, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the word of God. Will you all pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. We give you thanks. Amen. So Emily Cole, I don't know if, if you know that name. Emily Cole found out the hard way how important salt is. Emily Cole is currently an ACC silver medalist in the 300-meter steeplechase for a certain local college town known for its basketball prowess, but we'll stay out of that, just saying. But when she was a high schooler, um, she was preparing for a meet, and she was trying to gain um, every competitive advantage. She was doing everything by the sports nutrition book. She was eating clean and really hydrating. And she actually overhydrated. She didn't have enough sodium and she had way too much water in her body and she had a seizure and she went into a coma for two days. A, I didn't know that such a thing could happen or existed. B, y'all drink water. You're way closer to being underhydrated than overhydrated. So don't <laughs> do that. And C, she's very much okay and is competing at a really high level and also like using some of what she learned to teach other people about um, sports nutrition and, and uh, is working with other aspiring athletes. So while obviously prizing salt, I doubt that Jesus had in mind the body's optimal sodium content when he continued his sermon on the hillside. Last week, we showed that Jesus isn't stingy with a blessing. He's not afraid to furl some eyebrows as he looks to the disinherited and the hurting and gives them the good news that they are on the right track. They're seeing the world as it is. And they have an inheritance in the world as it is becoming. He offers two final blessings, but he kind of breaks format a little bit. Rather than blanket statements about the happy blessedness of the poor and meek and mourning, here he looks them in their eyes 
And he said, y'all are the very salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. Illuminating, elemental. Whereas the sermon in general is a sort of recap of the wisdom and calling from the mountain relayed by Moses the liberator. Moses goes up on a mountain, meets with God, relays a teaching to people. Sounds kind of familiar. Matthew's doing something in this telling of the good news. Jesus here might be remixing uh, one of his contemporaries, Pliny the Elder, and saying, Pliny had a saying, he was a, a popular Roman uh, figure. He said, there's nothing more useful than salt and sun, was the, the Roman saying. We can see Jesus kind of messing with some of the slogans that are going around in his day. And this slogan, like many of the slogans of American empire, they sound really good, but they don't offer much hope for those who are chewed up and spit out by a graceless system. He, he uses this slogan and he calls them more fully into hope and into community. Salt and sun are helpful for Roman building, but Jesus has a little something different to say. He says, y'all are the very salt of the earth. It's important that you get the plurality and the informality of the y'all there. I had to learn this y'all growing up in Florida. I had to come north to go south is how it works. Jesus' sermon is accessible. It is local. His words are to each and every one of his hearers, but more so to all of them and all of us together. Up on the screen, some genius person coded a plug-in for the Bible to capture every time there's a second person plural in the New Testament, and it takes out the cold flat U and replaces it with a y'all. It is the yallversion.com. I just wish I came up with that. It makes me assume that a very Jewish Messiah had a very Southern drawl, and I love that. Y'all are the very salt of the earth. Here's the one thing about salt. It is magical. It's also common. <laughs> it has a taste of its own, but it is at its best when it is making everything it touches better. Salt is pure. Salt preserves, and I love when salt is doing a, pre a preserving action. This process is called curing. It's making things better. For all these noble purposes of salt, salt is also not afraid to get its hands dirty and to do the work. In a pinch, you can use iodized table salt to melt a windshield or a sidewalk if you really had enough of it. So in calling them salt and calling us salt, Jesus is proclaiming a good news over us. That we not only have a valuable identity, but we have a lot of work to do in this world out of that identity. Going back to the message paraphrase, he says, y'all are to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? So that means at our best, we are doing the vivifying work only resurrection people can be trusted with. That that work, bringing out the, the God flavors of creation towards a new creation might not always be very notable or visible. It might even seem kind of invisible. It also means we need to spread out. The worst thing is when 
the kids are helping with cooking and you give them salt duty and you wind up at one very salty spot and the rest very bland casserole spread out in bed in our place in this place it means that we should be deeply investing in neighbors in our neighborhood, not to get out of them what we want, but to help pull out of them what God has already put in them. That is the, the salt difference. This can be counterintuitive work too. In so many ways, those who walk with Jesus are in on this cosmic secret. We know how things really are. And that can kind of do a number on us sometimes and make it make us feel like we need to be experts and know-it-alls, make us feel like we need to always be on the defensive posture rather than being like scouts. We're scouts, not soldiers. <laughs> Salt is curious then. It asks questions. It's quick to listen and slow to speak and definitely slow to become angry. The second salt overwhelms, the meal is ruined. Salt is also never the meal in and of itself. Salt is not forceful or coercive. I loved what Anna said. It, it reminded me of, of the, the picture we have of God's love. It, it, it is pursuant, but not coercive or forceful. Um, there was a missionary bishop, Leslie Newbegin, and he, he moved to India. And when he came back to the West, he realized how, how different um, maybe he was. Maybe the West was the same as it always was, but how different he was and, and how the West needed a fresh encounter with the gospel of Jesus. And, and he, as this missionary bishop theologian, wrote uh, about the missionary, the, the, the one on mission with God in this world. He said, the missionary has to be the salt that dissolves in the meat. It disappears and dies in it. That's the goal. That's success. So, friends, y'all are salt. Let us stay salty. That's why I got Gary to read the passage, one of the saltiest people I know. And my dad's out of town, so. <laughs> salt does this work of diffusing joy of making places better than how we found them. It surprises even ourselves with how flavor-filled mundane places and people can be. Even coming to understand how contrast and difference and the right amount of dissonance can create something beautiful in the world, that's kind of what salt does. It, it is, this is, a, this is beautifying, but it can be a surprise. It can also be disruptive. Like I think of some of the ways salt works in like, like those weird middle school meal hacks, like trying French fries and Frosties and salt on your watermelon or a maple bacon donut for the first time. It is disruptive to the ways we normally think about things. In a world that is built on like saccharine sweet, immediate gratification, salt doesn't always seem like the obvious choice. It's not always welcomed at the table, but man, it might just be the missing ingredient. So Jesus continues and he says, y'all are also the very light of the world. I think this is a similar instruction. It's a similar blessing. It's a statement of fact. It's their constitution. It's who and what they are, who and what we are in this Past season, I admit to feeling a bit 
powerless. It's been kind of frustrating in several areas of my life and our lives to feel like we're at the mercy of others making decisions that affect us and that there's not a whole lot we can do about it. But I think what I like about Jesus calling us light, again, I'm not suggesting that Jesus had a direct imagination for solar energy, but light does a lot. <laughs> light has quite a bit of subtle power in our world. Like think about, think about early last week, how when it was really cold and really wet and really gray, and then think about right about Wednesday when it got sunny. Think how powerful that is just to our emotions, what just a little bit of sunlight can do. And on a bigger scale, enough light caught by enough solar panels can actually power a whole town. Sunlight has the power to disinfect, so the saying goes. And the preacher once declared that darkness can't drive out darkness, only light can do that. So Jesus is immensely blessing us, is immensely entrusting us with power when he calls us light. Jesus is calling people blessed, is making us torchbearers, even if we're kind of the least likely to be that, or if we haven't been entrusted with that or haven't felt that way. This is like, it's like on the last day of class, Jesus giving a superlative for most likely to succeed to someone who has spent more time with the principal than in class, right? Jesus is saying, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are salt. You are light and can be, should be, go be. But here's the thing. God's people's light is always derivative. It's always secondary. It's, it, we're always more moon than sun. We don't make it happen. We reflect God's goodness in this world. This, again, might be a little bit of a dig on that Roman slogan, which relishes like the machismo delusion that there can and should be only like one sun. The new creation shown in the book of Revelation shows that the future, there actually won't even be a sun because God will be our light and this light will be diffuse in his people in the city. God uses even now our words in our lives as light to show God's mercy and grace and goodness to each other, to show it to the world. But it, you might be saying, you know, if you're in a house like mine, what about all of this multitude of failing flashlights right when you need them? What about the batteries that have been spent on dumb kids things instead of the emergency moment, right? You only need a little bit of light. And light is good even if it's borrowed. Light still makes its way into nooks and crannies. Even in the pitch black, a small light can be seen, just a candle. In light, like salt, it only blinds, it's only harmful if it is the main event, if it is used out of proportion. Light is for seeing as salt is for tasting. Light reveals and light guides and light reflects. 
If salt can never be the main course, light can never be the main attraction. Maybe this is where some folks are getting it wrong in Jesus' hearing. Wrong enough for Jesus to kind of totally pivot <laughs> after this. And he starts talking about righteousness. He starts talking about the Pharisees. And I generally think these guys kind of get a bad rap, the Pharisees. Maybe, don't come at me later about that. We can talk. Um, but like Pharisee <laughs> just can kind of often be just shorthand for like any garden variety religious hypocrite, right? And if we're not careful, it can slide really easily into like an on-ramp to anti-Semitism or something, right? But listening closely, I don't think Jesus is really doing that. In some ways, he's, he's confirming, he's reaffirming at least the core of their work. For Jesus, it's not that the Pharisees were too righteous, it's that they weren't righteous enough, or maybe they weren't righteous in the right way enough. This might also be helpful to keep in mind for many of us and our neighbors who are navigating like personal and cultural histories of religious abuse and trauma, or just the sense of like, if that's what religion is like, I'm out on this God stuff, right? Jesus, though, is setting up a new way that's actually a reclamation in a fulfillment of the old way. It's also an invitation to follow him in this new way. I think that's what's happening here. The religious, elites, uh, the religious elites of Jesus' day, they wanted nothing more than to follow God. But like most of us know, if you hold on to something too tightly, you can actually strangle it. You can choke it out. That happens also when we try to muscle up, when we try to make things happen on our own, rather than when we trust in God when we slip into the stream of God's already activity and faithfulness. If we don't, if we don't uh, join God, if, if we try to get out in front of God, actually some pretty grotesque things can happen. Righteousness can mutate into rightness rather than what it's always been, a, a long and continuing story of God's deliverance, the making right of creation. Again, these words of Jesus that have become so um, like religiously configured in our imaginations are often just like simple words, like simple household words, like this righteousness that, that we feel like we need to really puff up our chest to say is, is a right-making word that is almost the same as just if something is knocked over, I'm going to set it back up right. So Jesus is calling us into that life of being God's putting it, like put right people, putting the world upright. I don't quite know what to do with the part uh, towards the end of our passage that says, therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will call the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I always thought the kingdom of heaven was probably pretty flat and democratic, right? But it makes me wonder a little bit about heaven. If true, this future, God's eternity, might be something like a neighborhood. Where even there, 
always and forevermore, you still don't necessarily get to choose your neighbors, right? We spend forever with God learning how to live alongside people who are loved by God even more than they could ever know and just needed to probably try less. We also are forever learning because God has all the time in the world how deeply loved we are, even though we often resist it. I think that's a little bit of this, like, ranking people in the kingdom of heaven. It's just all of us with God learning how to be better with God and each other. So y'all are salt. Taste that in each other. Feast. Y'all are light. See that for each other. Sometimes we need people to see for us or to cast light in places we can't see. Enjoy. I think this means that God's kingdom is sensory, these words. Not always sensational. It means that God's kingdom is useful. It says if you're salt that doesn't act salty, you might lose your saltiness and then you'll be good for nothing. I think God's kingdom and us being fit for God's kingdom makes us actually good for something. Maybe that resists that, that um, uh, criticism that we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good, right? Like, uh, I, think, I think it's actually both. We're heavenly minded, which makes us good for something. This means that God works through ordinary, everyday means in extraordinary ways. God uses this salt to unlock and unleash divine beauty and flavor in the world. God uses light to reveal truth and mercy and God's goodness. In the same way, God uses water, we're coming, we'll come to learn in this season ahead of us, to welcome us into God's community of new birth to cleanse us from our sins and to raise us in the spirit with Christ to walk in newness of life. In a, in a moment, we'll gather around this table and we'll see how God uses bread and cup to invite us to remember and to rehearse and to participate in Christ's broken body for the salvation of the world. So Jesus is inviting us to taste and to see and to hear and to feel that the Lord is good. Jesus invites us to join him in this slow work of tasting and seeing the kingdom of God. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. Thanks for calling us uh, what we already are and calling us um, to be those things more fully. Thanks for uh, these blessings, salt and light. Help us contribute to the blessing of others in this world. Um, help us um, reveal and, and Lord, reveal to us um, the ways that you're working in our lives and around us and in others. And Lord, um, guide us as we pursue righteousness, 
so we don't shift or uh, exclude any of the hard things that you're calling us to to do and to be um, uh, but but are walking with you and you with us Lord, thanks for this kingdom that is so close to us that is all around us and that we experience um, in real ways. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.